We hope you'll enjoy this episode of Women Worth Knowing. Make sure you rate us on your podcast app, subscribe, and share it with a friend. Well, hello, hello. Welcome to Women Worth Knowing. My name is Jasmine Allnut, and I'm here with Cheryl Broderson. <laughs> I wanted you to start that out, especially since you're hosting today's episode. Oh, okay. Well, that's great. Episode. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. So, yes, today we are kind of carrying on. We've been looking at um, some of the early church women uh, and some gals from the Middle Ages. And you might remember that I mentioned uh, a gal before called Hildegard of Bingen. And she was known for several things. One of them what was, was her name. <laughs> yeah, her name was pretty noteworthy. Yes, <laughs> all of those women—Ethelberga, Clotilda—it's yes. like, oh my gosh, what in the world? I mean, glad you did them. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad these phased out, and we don't use those names anymore. So, <laughs> but Hildegard, one of the things she was uh, that was noteworthy about her was she was kind of considered a mystic a little bit. And so I thought, you know what? Let's launch in and talk about a few more women that uh, were mystics in the Middle Ages. But I want to explain this first because some people might hear the word mystic. And think, uh uh-oh, we're going to get into spacey weirdos here. And a little bit. And some of them, yes, some (laughs) of them are unusual. But there's a reason for this. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And one of the reasons was that women were illiterate. That was huge. It played a big role in this. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, they are unique. They're different from us in many ways. But a lot of that had to do with the culture and the time period they were in. Now, I want to just define Christian mysticism so you understand what that specifically meant to these women and men. There were a lot of uh, male mystics oh, yes. as well, like Bernard of Clairvaux and guys like that. But Christian mysticism, St. John of the Cross. Yeah. Anyway, Christians believe that God wishes to dwell in the hearts of all men and women, and Christian mysticism is a mysterious experience of that presence. The Christian saints and scholars have also called this experience infused contemplation, a loving knowledge of God that wells up from the depths of the soul. And so it's a a pursuit of the direct union of the human soul with God through contemplation and love. And so really, they just wanted a deeper experience with the Lord than what they were given during their time. And so they really wanted to see spiritual renewal take place in the church, a deeper relationship with God, something more intimate. Let me do a disclaimer. Mm -hmm. When Jasmine is going to be talking about these mystics, we don't agree Mm. with what they did and a lot of what they did. We feel like um, maybe their heart was in the right place, but they sure got off. Right. You know, we're going back to the motivation. They wanted a relationship with the Lord. They didn't have the Bible. And in Hebrews chapter 5, it talks about how discerning comes by way of reading and ingesting the Word of God. And that's really, yeah, that's actually really important because we have to understand at this time, especially because, yeah, we're talking about the Middle Ages here. And the churches weren't teaching the Word of God. Most of, exactly. They were mainly doing their services in Latin. And so most of these people could not read or study the Bible for themselves, um, especially the women, especially Mm -hmm. the uneducated. And so such a thing was actually frowned on by the medieval church. They saw the reason why they, they kept the Bible in Latin was because they thought the Bible was something so sacred that only the clergy and the well-educated were worthy. They figured if common people read it, I mean, literally they said this. I can't remember which pope said this. It was like um, uh, pearls being trampled by swine. Yeah, but That's also, how they viewed common people. Also, they said, you know, the common people aren't wise enough or discerning enough. Yes. And they'll be cutting off their limbs because it says it's better to cut off your hand and live oh, maimed. Oh, yeah. 
than to have enter all your members yeah. enter into hell. Yeah. So they were afraid that the, that's what they said. They said the Bible is also too dangerous for the common yes, people. Yes, they're too, yeah, they're too ignorant. They'll just take it literally and do stupid things. Mm -hmm. So they would just, they just basically kept it in Latin, which as we learned before with Paula and Marcella helping Jerome translate the Vulgate, that's ridiculous because that was that's the whole right. point. That's right. Was he put it in Latin because that was the common language. That's so right. now here we are in the Middle Ages with yes. multiple languages right. and nobody is bothering to translate the Bible. That's right. And so these poor people, they're just basically doing the best with what they had. And so there's this really twisted view that kept the common folk totally suppressed in ignorance. And that's, you know, one reason why we call the Middle Ages sometimes the Dark Ages was because of things like that. And so in order to have a relationship with God, a lot of mystics had to just depend on the teachings of the church and their local priests. Um, and then, you know, however they and felt God. Was, yes. And that was like what the priest said, not necessarily from the Bible. Exactly. It was his interpretation. And because that was when a lot of mythology came in. Um, mythology about saints, mythology about um, even what Jesus did when he was a child. That's where we get a lot yeah, of the those apocrypha. Straight, right. Yeah, all of that stuff. It just mm -hmm. started to get a little <laughs> out of hand. And yes. so we have to at least appreciate these people in their context and realize, you know, they, they had their prayer lives mm -hmm. and the Lord would reveal himself to them through their prayer lives in different ways. But sometimes it did lead to some unusual and questionable practices. And this is so preparatory for when you meet people who ask you, because these mm -hmm. names that you're going to mention today, they're yeah. well known. Yeah. And it's good for women to know who they are mm -hmm. so that you'll have a way to answer it. And that's why we're getting, you know, Jasmine and I are giving you a little bit of background, too. Yes, exactly. So you understand where we're coming from here. We don't think, oh, everything they did was wonderful. <laughs> yes. But to know, like, they were doing the best with what they had. And that's especially right. when we get into, I'll talk next time about, like, Catherine of Siena, some of these right. other ones. They really, you know, loved the Lord. I mean, there was a genuine relationship with God there. Um, but it you know, they really <laughs> just didn't have much to work with. However, I do think there are things we can learn from them, glean from them, um, especially like, you know, their devotion to God and their um, emphasis on contemplating the cross and meditating on God's word, which is what we have now. We yeah. have God's word and we have more opportunity to meditate properly. Plus than they these did. women were very sacrificial and oh, committed totally. in their service to God. Yeah, totally, totally. And they really, you know, they made a really strong spiritual impact on the medieval church and we got to remember the medieval church, as we just talked about, it was plagued by, you know, corruption, um, formality, rituals, head knowledge of God, or not even proper knowledge of God. You know, they would not read the Bible and, you know, to the people exactly like we were talking about, you know, the lack of accessibility. Well, they wanted so, the power and they knew yep. that they'd be caught if they yep. really taught the Bible. Then the priest teaching the Bible would have to live by the Absolutely. Bible. And that was a time, too, in the Dark Ages when the office of a bishop or in the church could be bought. Mm -hmm. And so it, oh, was it was really so bad. corrupt. It was so corrupt. Absolutely. And so, I mean, I could get way into the weeds yes, with yes, that and some yes, of the sorry, evil things sorry. the popes did. No, but I mean. <laughs> yes. But just so you know, this was, yeah, yes. it was a bad time. Yes. And that's why these gals were so um Significant because mm -hmm. they were providing an important challenge to the church in their day. Like, hey, there's more to a, this. We want a real genuine relationship with God. None of this, right. you know, stuff you're trying to peddle before us. So uh, we will. So today we're just going to look at two of them uh, to start us off here. The first one is probably the most controversial and the least, um, 
I would say she's the least spiritual figure. Um, she's more of a political figure, but she is worth knowing. And we're talking about, like Cheryl said, because she's the most famous one. Her name is Joan of Arc. <laughs> you guys might have heard of her. I think everyone's heard of Joan of Arc. Oh, I've heard a Bible study on Joan of Arc. <laughs> wow. At a, at, a, at a pastor's wife's retreat. So, yes, she's well known. She is very well known. we were well encouraged known. to be like Joan of Arc. So. <laughs> wow. Okay. <laughs> you, we need to know who this woman is, Absolutely. Jasmine. Uh, one historian actually did call her the most widely known of all medieval women. Yes. So she has quite a reputation. Some people actually think she was a mythological figure or, a you know, just a legend, but she actually was legit. She was a real person and did some real remarkable things. So Joan was born to a prosperous farmer in a little French country village, and her early life was actually pretty quiet. She just um, spun wool, helped in the fields, all that sort of a but thing. I heard there was like a prophecy given before she was born. Oh, interesting. To her mother about, well, in one of those books that you read on Joan of Arc. Right, right, right. That You're there like, was, was like real? a prophecy that was given that, you know, she would rise up and she would, you know, fight for, I can't remember, like righteousness, I think was the mm. prophecy. Well, and that's that mm -hmm. does go with what happened. So kind of. Yes. So uh, this was actually a really um, precarious time politically for France. We're right in the middle of what was called the Hundred Years' War. That was going on between France and England. And at this particular phase of the war, England kind of had the upper hand and they were occupying northern France, which is where Joan lived. And so there had been a peace treaty. And so under that peace treaty, the crown prince of France, his name was Charles, he had been disinherited. And so Henry VI was now king of both England and France. I'm telling you that for a reason. Don't worry, I'm not trying to. <laughs> Everyone take notes on this. You'll be quizzed at the end. So, <laughs> so one summer, so that's the backdrop of what's going on. Hundred Years' War, a very volatile, chaotic time in English and French history. So one summer, Joan is 13 years old. And oh, by the way, she was born in 1412. We do know that. So this is about 1425. She's busy at work uh, in the fields and she sees this bright light and hears a voice addressing her as Joan the maid. And so she starts hearing voices frequently. I don't know, to us, we would think like, well, that might have been a mental illness thing or something. But I don't. Yeah. Anyways, later, she identified these voices as Michael the Archangel, Catherine of Alexandria and Margaret of Antioch. And they were uh, early church martyrs that supposedly came to her. And this is why she's considered a mystic is because of her experiences with these voices telling her what to do. And the voices begin to speak to Joan and tell her that she is called to save France and bring Charles, right, who I mentioned before, the disinherited prince, to the throne as the rightful heir of France. And so, of course, Joan really, I mean, she's like, OK, come on, seriously. She really was kind of trying to blow these voices off like this is impossible. I don't know what you're talking about. There's no way. Look at me. I'm just a girl. But uh, the voices kept telling her God would be with her, and she became so compelled. It was like they just kind of bothered and harassed her so much that finally she felt compelled to obey the voices. She said she'd rather die than disobey them after a while. And so through the help of a cousin, she was able to go to the local authorities uh, with her message and kind of say, look, I'm, you know, I have these voices from God telling me that I need to go and help bring Charles to the throne. And of course, they blew her off and they basically just told her cousin, give her a good slapping and take her back to her father. It's like, wow, okay. So shut down, pretty hardcore, not surprising with such an unusual message. Uh, but because Joan would not give up in her appeals, nine months later, she was able to kind of convince everyone she meant business. I don't know if maybe her mom's dream had come in at this point. You know what? I think I was wrong about her mom's dream. I think it was a prophecy of the town or prophecy given in France. Mm. And it was called the maid. The maid would lead into oh, battle. And then so at it was some just point, more vague. Yes, okay. that that Joan came to believe that she was the maid. Interesting. Mm -hmm. All right. And as circumstances played out, I don't mm -hmm. know, it's kind of an interesting parallel there. 
So um, after a while, you know, some people actually did start to believe that she was destined by God to save France. And you have to keep in mind during the Middle Ages, the church and state uh, governed society together, right? Remember that it, that had happened because of Constantine about a thousand years earlier. So some form of Christianity was woven into every aspect of the culture. You know, like Cheryl just mentioned a few minutes ago, devotion to saints, holy re relics, superstitious things like that, that had all crept in under Constantine. They'd been allowed to kind of flourish and grow for hundreds of years. And so really, it's not surprising that even though Joan sounds really unusual, especially to us, we might have just said, OK, we need to just put her on some meds. Um, <laughs> but it's not surprising that people back then would eventually start thinking, gosh, maybe she did hear from God, right? Mm -hmm. Because they were mm -hmm. more inclined towards those things, just as a society in, in general. Right. right. Um, and again, they were under the same false teaching. They didn't have the word of yeah, God. Yeah, how would they know? Yes. Exactly. So they're like, well, okay, I guess we should take her seriously. And if she's claiming, I think God wants me to be the maid, mm -hmm. okay, that's going to save. And again, too, as you mentioned, superstition was so big mm. in that time. I mean, in the medical community, we're all, you know, it was all superstition. Yeah. Everything. Yeah, exactly. So she took off with a, a they gave her a military escort to go across enemy territory to find Charles, um, the French heir, and tell him of her plans. And on the journey, Joan cut off her hair. She began to wear men's clothing so she wouldn't look conspicuous. That would later come back to get her a little bit. Uh, but she was just trying to go undercover, kind of. And so Charles heard, I guess, you know, a courier. Somebody had come and delivered a message. Hey, the maid is coming to help you. And he didn't know how to receive her. He was thinking like, okay, this is some weird person who's hearing voices. And so he decides to test her by like blending in with the, you know, with his, uh, with the crowd, I guess, basically all of the people that were there with him. Um, and so she, he, you know, he took off his, you know, more royal garments and just dressed like a peasant and stuff like that. So she comes in. Uh, to meet him, identifies him immediately. She walked right up to him and knew who he was. Remember, folks, this is pre-newspapers and social media. How would she have a clue what he looked like? She wouldn't know. But she walked right up to him. Even though he protested, he's like, oh, I don't know what you're talking about. She's like, no, you're Charles. And so everybody got a little bit like, ooh, like, wow, she does know something. And so they started to take her a little more seriously. I will say, you know, to everyone's credit, they did carefully examine and question her to make sure she was all there. That she wasn't just like, you know, off her nut. And sure enough, even after several weeks of questioning, everybody found, they said, this was what was recorded about her, that they found in her only humility, purity, honesty, and simplicity. So whatever, you know, was going on with Joan, it was sincere. She was in her right mind, thinking clearly. So, um, yeah. I, I, again, I'm just presenting the story here. Do with it what you will. <laughs> so she's, she's still worth knowing. She is. <laughs> so she's given uh, charge of a company of soldiers during the Battle of, well, we would say Orleans, like New Orleans, but Orléans. I don't know how they would pronounce it in France. And uh, she goes out into battle with these soldiers because they figure, well, OK, she's you know given favor by God, ordained by God to help us and help our armies. And so she was just courageous and so confident that she inspired the troops to victory. She even got um, her shoulder even got injured during the battle and she kept fighting. And they just kind of rallied around her as kind of their spiritual figurehead, like to help lead them on to victory over the English. And it worked. I mean, she you know, they won the battle. And then there were several other victories after this. And so Joan the Maid becomes this famous figure uh, throughout France. And then sure enough, according to what the voices had told her, Charles gets crowned Charles VII, King of France. So all of these things start unfolding just as she had felt called, um, you know, to enact and help happen. And so 
Uh, Joan urged Charles to continue pursuing the English after he took the throne and, and get them out of Paris. Apparently they were kind of, you know, lodged there. But he, I guess his counselors were, you know, debating like, well, how should we go about this? I think we should wait. And so uh, he was really hesitant. He wasn't really a strong leader. I mean, she was more of the figurehead. I mean, if you want to find a biblical parallel, we can do Deborah, Deborah and Barrick. Yep. I knew you would. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you want to try to find something in this that Close. to connect. Close, yes. <laughs> there is that sense because he was a little bit weaker and she was yes. so strong and confident. So what happened was uh, she continued to fight like, OK, well, you know, I think you should get them out of Paris, but he didn't do it. So they continued to battle the English in various skirmishes. Unfortunately, the next year, Joan, who was by now 18 years old, was captured by the English. And the English, you know, they had no, you know, they didn't really have necessarily the background and connection here. They, I think they might have heard of Joan, but, you know, they didn't have any um, special sentiment toward her. And so they charged her with heresy. They accused her of being a schismatic because she said she would obey God and her voices, uh, the saints, rather than the church. And she also kept insisting that she had been given divine revelation. She kept wearing men's clothing. All of those things were unusual, and they kind of just, you know, basically decided she was a witch or something like that. And they also politically wanted to discredit her to challenge King Charles's legitimacy. Like, oh, this lady helped you get to the throne? She's a whack job. So it's kind of sad because Charles ended up distancing himself from her for the sake of his throne instead of trying to help her. Um, you know, here she is. She's innocent. She hasn't done anything wrong, but he's kind of like acting like, oh, I, you know, Joan who? Yeah. <laughs> So it was really kind of sad. He basically left her to her fate. And so May 30th, 1431, 19-year-old Joan of Arc was burned at the stake. Her final word as she gazed on a crucifix was Jesus. And 20 years later, Charles had her case investigated and she was proclaimed innocent. It's like, okay, a little late, buddy. I don't, you know. Let's he's a Frenchman. He, she was on his side. Of course, yes. he's going to say innocent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But That's again, true. That's there's true. that distance. So now... Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. And she actually was canonized by the church in 1920. And she was considered uh, the remarkable girl who in 15 months changed the history of Western Europe. So, you know, again, an unusual, um, remarkable girl. But she's Uh, famous (laughs) probably because of the Ingrid Bergman movie. of Oh, there's that too. Joan of Arc. Yep. Yep. Exactly. I mean, yeah, it's been portrayed in so many Mm -hmm. different venues, books, literature, movies. So. That's Joan. Mm -hmm. And next, I want to talk about Julian of Norwich, another gal. Um, This is a little bit more spiritual (laughs) than Joan. Joan, like I said, she's kind of a political mystic. Uh, Julian is more of a spiritual mystic. So she was an English woman, and we don't know a whole lot about her, but what's gathered from her writings. But her writings have been really influential, actually. Um, I was actually really surprised. I was doing some research on her and how many people have uh, quoted her or referenced her in their writings, a lot of uh, even more modern devotional authors. So she lived pretty much as a as a recluse. And so all we know about her biographically is that she probably was a Benedictine nun. She lived as an anchorite in the town of Norwich. And anchorites were basically like hermits, um, people who lived in seclusion. But not just seclusion for itself, uh, for its own sake, but they were dedicating themselves to a life of prayer and contemplation. And that's what Julian did. Um, She was uneducated and illiterate until she taught herself to read and write in her 30s. And I think she did that in order to record some of the visions she had had from God. And so uh, we actually don't even know for certain if her name was Julian. She just lived in a building attached to the Church of St. Julian and took that name because she apparently didn't want to bring any attention to herself through her writings and by attributing them to herself. So she just took on the name of the church. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So when she was 30 years old, she was contemplating the cross and she became deathly ill. 
they actually brought in somebody to do last rites because they thought she was dying. Um, after this, though, she began to rally and um, she had a, a trance involving 16 visions or revelations of Christ's sufferings. And from that set of revelations or what she called shoeings, she developed spiritual meditations over the next 20 years. She just meditated on those uh, visions that she had had. And these were compiled into a book called 16 Revelations of Divine Love. This is actually what's crazy about this is this is the first known work by a woman in English. Hmm. I know. I know. I didn't realize that. And it was thought to be one of the most exemplary works of medieval mysticism. So a lot of people would reference her when they talk about that period in history with the mystics. And so the themes of her visions and her meditations included, you know, solid theological things. The Trinity, incarnation, the death and resurrection of Jesus, worship, prayer. Very theological for a medieval woman, especially, like I said, one who was illiterate until, you know, uh, her 30s. Um, but her writings are also very down to earth. They're full of love and the joy that we can experience in Christ. There was a familiarity there not found in the church at large during that time, as we've already been talking about. Again, this is one thing that the mystics were trying to bring back into the church. The medieval church was really big on, I mean, not only some of the things we already talked about, that it was just rituals and rites and corruption and all of that, but the church really emphasized justice, the justice of God, judgment of sin, uh, you know, all of those kinds of things. And, and so people were living under a lot of condemnation and wanting to do works in order to prove that they were saved. And we know, of course, the justice of God is important. Judgment of sin is important. But the love and grace of God were being completely shoved to the side. And so that's why mystics like Julian were important, because they were trying to bring the heart and the love of God back into the picture. One biographer said, Julian wants us to know that we can experience nothing more intimate, nothing more domestic and ordinary than the goodness of God. In other words... God's accessible. And that's something I talk about in a lot of my classes, um, church histories, uh, even like history of worship, and how the church had really made um, the things of God so inaccessible to common people that they couldn't bring God into their daily lives. They had to come to church, listen to a sermon they didn't understand, perform all these rituals, buy holy relics, all of those kind of things. And so, you know, we take all that for granted now, like the accessibility we have, just going to church, singing worship songs, things like that weren't allowed. They weren't um, Plus, church, available. church was a spectator sport. Yeah, exactly. It wasn't, you couldn't participate. There was no participation for the common man. They weren't considered worthy. Mm -hmm, exactly. So this is really, I mean, an important thing to reintroduce into the medieval church. Mm -hmm. And then along with that, of course, came a call to deeper relationship with the Lord. And she said, God is the creator and the lover and the protector for until I am substantially united to him, I can never have love or rest or true happiness. Until that is, I'm so attached to him that there can be no created thing between my God and me. And so, you know, again, knowing like I can have a real relationship with God. And if I seek him first, you know, he will bless and work and move in my life and lead and guide me. And so, again, that I love that quote, too, because that really captures the heart of the mystics. They wanted total union with Jesus. So remember, when we look at the mystics. We need to understand and appreciate them in their context and that their relationship with God was unique to their circumstances. And so there is something that we can learn from them, even though they were unusual. I think we can learn a little more from Julian than from somebody like Joan of Arc. <laughs> yes. But, you know, it's interesting, too, about Julian because she wrote her second book was the long text. Oh, yeah. The long version. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And that had 86 chapters. I mean, that's a lot of writing because this was handwriting. Yeah. And 63,500 words. Wow. That would have all been written out. 
man. Yeah. I mean, so, that's like. I mean, and even think she had to like teach herself to write. I mean, since mm-hmm. she was illiterate until yes, this happened. Yes. So, I mean, very well, remarkable. Think about it. Like she didn't, she wasn't able to read either until she taught herself mm-hmm. to read. Exactly. Which I think, you know, I mean, she's a woman worth knowing just because um, she taught herself to read and write. I yes. Mean, that's incredible. And then too. writes the first work in English for a woman. I yes. mean, that's pretty amazing. Um, the first she, known work. Known work. Sorry, there could have been others. That's true. I there mean, there were other been. in other some cultures. There were other writings. That, yeah, like later, but. some people swear that Shakespeare was actually Shakespeare's wife. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that's funny. Oh yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah. So <laughs> yes. Now, I, I mean, I want to say, of course, I don't think it's like a great idea to spend your life as a recluse, uh, shut off from society. That's not really the lesson I drew from Julian, but. I will say in later years, she actually kind of launched out and became known as a spiritual mentor in the community after she finished writing all of this. But she is a good example, I think, of how important it is to to contemplate, to meditate on the Lord, meditate on his goodness, meditate on his sacrifice for us, those kind of things that we don't really think about a lot in Western culture. But, you know, think of Psalm, Psalm 119. Yes, or even Psalm 1. Yes. You know, meditating on his word day Day and and night. night. And especially on the works of the Lord. In fact, there's a scripture that says the works of the Lord are great and studied by all who, you know, love him. Oh, I love that. So there is that idea of like we are to study and contemplate what God has done. Exactly. And so I think that's a good lesson that we can draw from the mystics. You know, instead of looking at every single thing they did, look at just the overall. Because they did a lot of crazy things. Yes. You know, we're we're not excusing the crazy things but we are giving some understanding some background to the crazy things they did Mm -hmm. but we're also i I think about romans uh 12 verse 2 that our minds are transformed Mm. um by the renewing of the spirit of god that we may approve the things that are good and excellent and perfect so we're looking at these mystics and we're finding the best knowing that they Mm -hmm. wanted to serve the lord they really did so we're looking for the best like what should be or could be emulated yes and we're kind of ignoring the things that are a little Little, yeah a little off yeah Catherine of siena i read something about her i was like whoa but we're gonna not worry about that when we get to her (laughs) because there were some we might mention one i might mention it yes there were some some good things here and so um I, i do like that idea of you know yeah like you said contemplation listening taking in sitting at his feet before we go out and are about the lord's business right and so uh you know in in the bible that's such an emphasis eastern cultures i think generally have a better understanding of this than we do in the west we're very very busy (laughs) you know i think it's important to mention too that during mm -hmm. her lifetime um her city was suffering the effects of black death oh Uh, there was the peasants revolt yep and there was also the suppression of the lollards so a lot of people were um being persecuted for their faith and there was also, you know, here's this awful uh, plague that's coming through. Mm-hmm. And she's she's getting people to contemplate Jesus. Yes, which is, which is wonderful. And that's prayed. good that you mentioned the yes. Lollards. Those were the followers of John Wycliffe. And Wycliffe was right. all about preaching the Bible or preaching in English yep. and teaching the Bible in English and right. all of that. And so that was being suppressed. Yep. Again, just to emphasize again that these people didn't have the access that That's we right. so take for granted. So I do want to point out, too, that Julian's writings and her visions did seem to be in line with Scripture. They're cited in a lot of devotional works, I think even in streams of in the desert. Might, she might have been cited. I might have gotten that wrong. I read that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about her. So um, her most famous quote is, all shall be well, all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. And my mom often says that. Actually, it's kind of cute. My mom always says that to me when I'm worrying about things. 
She'll text me and say, Jazz, all will be well in Jesus. And I think she gets that from Julian of Norwich because my mom likes the mystics. She's the one who gave me uh, really an understanding and appreciation for them in the first place to really see them in their context. Mm-hmm. What they were trying to do as unto the Lord. And that's, so. that's what makes these women women worth knowing. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. They, you know, took a stand and said, church, we need to get back to the heart and not just the head. Right, because, you know, church should be about how we live. Again, yes, going back to living. Romans 12, 1, we're supposed to give our lives, each one of us, as a living sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, Paul mm-hmm. didn't write that just to the leaders of Romans. Mm. He wrote it to the church yes. that was in Rome. Absolutely. That we're to give our all. And that's what Julian was encouraging us to do. Absolutely. Yeah, the common person. Give your all to Jesus, which is great. I love that. So, yeah, (laughs) there we go, folks. (laughs) Again, if if you've listened, if you like what we're doing, we'd love you to like us. We'd love to hear from Mm -hmm. you. And you can write us at wwk at cccm.com or you can check out uh, the uh, women.cccm.com website there's a link there also cheryl's website graciouswords.com has a link to the podcast so Mm -hmm. and also let us know what venue you're listening to us on that would be really great to know but until next time thank you for joining us and remember you're a woman worth knowing too absolutely see you next time Thank you for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett. For more information on Cheryl, visit CherylBroderson.com or follow her on Instagram or Facebook. You can also follow Jasmine on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. If you think there is a woman worth knowing, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at wwk at cccm.com. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Make sure you've subscribed and don't forget to rate us on your podcast app and share it with friends. Thank you again for listening to Women Worth Knowing with Cheryl Broderson and Jasmine Allnett.